0: Welcome to Butterflies and Bravery. This is episode 19. Which seems crazy and exciting at the same time. We're almost adults. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're heading towards that age, but it's been very fun learning a lot. I'm Whisper and my co-host is Jemima. And we have a wonderful guest with us
1: today. Um, Sandy. Yes, Sandy. That's right. Hi Sandy. hi, <laughs> hi manner hi whisper lovely hey. to be here and you're from australia right i am yes i live in australia in melbourne wow that's cool uh, i would
0: love to visit melbourne
1: i yeah. have so many
0: really close friends there in melbourne actually uh-huh i have a, I would have a wonderful time in, <laughs> in melbourne
1: yes yeah we're all in lockdown at the moment so we've been in in lockdown for quite a long time now longer than us yes
0: yeah it's the problem with the the vaccines or
1: yes yeah there's we have low vaccination numbers and the governments are trying to get up to I think 80 percent of the population but we're way below that so it's going to take some time so in the meantime we're all in lockdown yeah I'm sorry wow how long has that been this last one's been going on for about five weeks, I think. And wow! Yeah, yes, we can leave the house. We leave the house for an hour a day to go for necessary shopping or some exercise, but we're in a five k lock lockdown, so we can't go out of the five kilometers. Oh my! Wow. So, yeah, it makes the world seem quite small, really. Holy oh cow! Goodness. Wow! Yeah, our our lockdown was
2: never ever that extreme yes oh yeah. wow that's crazy
1: yeah, yeah. It's, it's like being in an invisible prison right
0: yeah yeah, yeah yes. for, for sure my, mm. the beginning of my lockdown was that extreme because my daughter half lives with a roommate he's on dialysis every day he needs he needs new kidneys. He was really, really high risk, so yeah. so we agreed to completely go on lockdown so that she could come back when she needed to. So yeah, I was getting my groceries delivered to me and everything. Like I was not
1: like <laughs> it was. Yeah, yeah it was serious. Yes, yeah.
2: I it, I think it's a little bit easier for us though after having been in the cult because. How many
1: years did we spend not being able to leave the house? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But for me, I have had a bit of a traumatic response to the lockdowns because it does bring my mind back to when I had no freedom yeah. and I was yeah. stuck in the house. And yeah. yeah, so it's, I've been having a bit of a traumatic response to it. Yeah. But I know what it is, so I can work with it. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, yeah, that's super
2: important. So you were 19 years old when you joined the children of God. Is that
1: correct? No, I was actually 17. Oh wow. Yes, I was 17. I was still in high school. I was doing my last year of high school. And I I first met them when they came to my school when I was 15. Wow. That was oh, wow. my first contact with them, yes. And then I met them again when I was 17. And immediately knew exactly who they were because I had a very strong bond with them the very that first time I met them. Even though I didn't speak to them um, personally, just what they were talking about, how they presented. They were like, were older than me, a few years older than me, but they were hippies. They mm-hmm. were very happy. They smiled. Very just, yeah. And I read their literature And I felt so connected to them, like I had met people I already knew but didn't Mm -hmm. know it. It was a Mm. very strange connection. And then when I met them again when I was 17, I knew exactly who they were. Mm. I recognized the literature, and that night I went to visit them. And it just within weeks I was very bonded to them, and Mm. I just – I, I basically went on strike. <laughs> I didn't do any more schoolwork. I didn't do any more assignments. Nothing mattered to me. Just being with the family, the college. So did you end up graduating from high school? No, I didn't. I left. Oh. I left, yeah. I left okay. high school. And I think it was around the October and school finished the end of November. I just wouldn't do anything. I, I wouldn't cooperate. Mm-hmm. Everything became meaningless to me. And my father allowed me to join, even though I was underage, because mm-hmm. I had such a big personality change. I was mm-hmm. a stranger, from yeah, an utter stranger to my family and everyone who knew me. Was your family particularly religious? Yes, I'm Catholic. We were Catholic. Okay. Yeah, so...
0: So there must have been a certain appeal then with the religious side of things, where your family felt somewhat comfortable with you hanging around with them.
1: In a way, yes. Yeah. Uh, But they just... They could never understand the intense attraction that I had to these people. And, yeah, they just couldn't get through to me. Couldn't get through to me at all. My father thought... If he let me go, I'd find out for myself it wasn't what I wanted and it wasn't what I thought it was, but that never mm-hmm. happened and I ended up being in there for 15 years. Wow. Mm-hmm.
2: And what do you think it was that drew you so strongly to them?
1: That's was it a, yeah. like the love bombing thing? Or Yep, yep, yeah. absolutely. I just felt so connected to them. Like within my own family of origin, I think I felt quite lonely really just quite normal for teenagers mm-hmm. but we were immigrants we we came to Australia from the UK in the 60s when I was a child and I always missed my Liverpool home my Liverpool family and although we had some relatives come here I felt I didn't belong in Australian society I just mm. yeah, felt very disconnected and then meeting Meeting the cult, they weren't Australian. They were Americans and they were dynamic and yeah. paid so much attention to me, very close attention to me and and really valued me. And yeah, I actually thought one of the one of the men in the group, one of the brothers, everyone's called sisters and brothers, I thought he was in love with me. Because it's
0: like he was paying that much attention, he was
1: paying so much attention yeah. to me. Yeah, I thought he'd fallen in love with me. <laughs> that was like flirty fishing without the sex, right. love bombing. Yeah, yeah. And it makes it so special. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and the literature. I like the literature. I like the message. And yeah, I was a goner. I was just a goner.
0: <laughs> There's going to be an appeal most of the time to a group of people that you perceive as being free. They were giving that message out, right? Drop out and, and be free. I've met a few people here in San Diego. They call them burners, but they're they're really big into Burning Man. Have you heard of Burning Man? It's the city they erect for a week out in the desert. But they're artists and they're all different. And meeting them right away, I was like, oh, these are my people. And, it, and I think yes. there's just that draw of you have a freedom and an acceptance in a place where I don't.
1: Yes. And that's so appealing. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, that's right. The psychology of it is very interesting. I didn't know them. They were strangers to me, and yet they felt more like my family than my own family and my own friends and my own culture. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting because I've suffered from depression from when I was a child. And... Mm. I've been doing some research recently about dopamine and how when people are low in dopamine, they're very susceptible to love bombing, of all things. They're very susceptible to attention. Anybody low in dopamine, giving them attention and validation, it spikes a person's dopamine and they feel Mm -hmm. enormous love and attachment and connection. I didn't know I had low dopamine. I've I've had an issue with depression basically my whole life. And Mm -hmm. just my recent research, I've discovered low dopamine has been a a constant in my life. Mm -hmm. And and, and it makes me wonder if that's the case with a lot of other people who joined the cult. And low dopamine is connected or it correlates with early childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Yes. So even though there are people from my generation in the cult, like first generation, as, as we're mm-hmm. called, even though a lot of them say, oh, no, I came from a normal family, a, a normal background, everything was like basically fine. But we don't always know we have trauma mm-hmm. because there's a lot of denial or, or a lot of lack of insight into our childhood experiences in fact childhood is a very traumatic experience at the best of times
2: yeah it's one of the tactics definitely that they used because like we were just talking on the podcast that we published this last week that humans are all in search of connections that's mm, yes. one of the biggest reasons for drug addiction and all of these things yeah. is that you yeah. need to connect with something even if they had a good childhood but mm. they didn't feel loved or cared for by their parents for whatever reason parents have their own issues every yes. parent has their own issues that they're <laughs> dealing right. with and yeah. it rubs off on the kids even though you don't really realize it that much oh, for sure of course yes, yes. and yes. And, feels normal. Yeah, exactly. It's a normal world. Yeah. yeah, and but you don't realize the damage that it's doing to to the kids. Even if you think you come from a normal childhood, like you were saying, childhood yeah. itself is a traumatic experience. I think every human being in their teenage years goes through a very difficult time when your hormones are raging and puberty, yes. and you're starting to figure out who you are and what you want and all of that stuff. A lot of the people that joined were were in that young, those formative sort of teenage years.
1: That's right. Yeah. Were some there, people were 14, 15, 16, 17. There were some older, but a lot were in that middle teen those middle teenage years. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the late 60s and 70s. Yep. Exactly. Um,
2: it probably just seemed, oh, such a great solution because it seemed like every generation is looking for a solution to society and they're yes. like, oh, let's just build our own. <laughs> yep. Yeah, So yeah. everybody was like, oh my God, finally somebody's got a better idea than this. So
1: let's go.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah. And the appeal somewhat makes sense. That's right. But it was very much fueled by David Berg who at the very least was narcissistic and at the worst a real sociopath. If you're not narcissistic, if you're not a sociopath, you have no idea. You have no comprehension of manipulation and exploitation. Like you just, you've never experienced it. You don't recognize it because you've never experienced anything like that before. So the mind control that existed within the cult Mm-hmm. We were sitting ducks to being captured by that, by those pressures. But it was, a, it, it, in fact, the cult is a very sociopathic organization, mm-hmm. and and you know that's David Berg and Karen Zerby, and, and their children carried that. I, I would say the way Berg's children were raised. Mm-hmm. They were very abused, and yet they appeared very animated, very happy, they could sing, they could win souls, win disciples, play music, but they were traumatised. Yeah. Imagine growing up with him as your father. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people in the cult did have experiences very similar to Berg's original children.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that's very true. I always tell
2: people that. Think of the most happy animated person you know; mm. they probably deal with depression almost yes. every time.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: And then you had children in the call. Yeah. So yeah.
0: How long were you
1: in when you got married? Okay. So mm-hmm. I'd been <laughs> in just under twelve months when oh, I wow. married. Yeah, so what happened is not long after I joined, they had the 3 months babes training with all the very intense indoctrination with the cult's literature. After that, yeah, about three months. So I've been in the cult about six months, and there was a huge influx of Americans, like this big wave of Americans coming every day, arriving. And I mm. lived in the border-based home, where they get picked up from the airport and brought directly to the household. I was in charge of the kitchen. So every day, American families, like sometimes two, three families or single people. And one of the very first arrivals was a, a fellow named Ethan. And he had been in the family two years. He was 21. And I recall the very moment I laid eyes on him, I'm like, Oh my God, he is gorgeous. (laughs) And that we ended up getting married, and the leadership were very, they wanted the Australians to marry the American single brothers or sisters because that would enable them to stay in the country they wouldn't even need visas they could become naturalized so even though I didn't know him very well he didn't know me very well it was a big surprise to him I was interested in him but it was very much encouraged by the leadership that we get together and Mm -hmm. yeah so there are a lot of people a lot of Australians who married Americans after knowing them for just very short periods of time I'd been in the cult just under a year when we were married. And then I had my first baby about maybe about 14 months after that. Wow. Hmm. Yes. But he wanted to leave the cult. He got to a point he was very unhappy and he wanted to leave, but I wasn't ready. And that's one of the big complications that all families in the cult faced. If you have one partner who wants to leave and the other isn't ready, you can lose your children. Yeah. You know, you, you can lose your partner and your children mm-hmm. and never see them again. So that was that's what happened to him. He was ready to leave and I wasn't. And it's a long story, but I ended up staying in the cult mm-hmm. and... Had my child. I was pregnant with my second child. And then, yeah, he just went off to live his life, but was absolutely devastated by the loss of his marriage and his little girls. Yeah. And that's what do you think it was that kept you in at the time? Do you know, I was very insecure. I was very emotionally immature and very insecure. The teaching was very strong that God will judge you. If you leave the family, because that's backsliding. There's so much literature about backsliding and God will punish you if you leave. That's turning your back on God. And I was too scared. Like the teaching is something will happen to your children. I had a baby. I was pregnant. I'm like, I can't risk that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That was a lot of what kept me in too, was Mm. just the fear of, you're going to be a drug addict and a prostitute if you leave and God's going to judge you because yeah, you were absolutely. put here. God made you born here. So obviously he wants you to be here and you're chosen. <laughs> I think a lot yeah. of it too was that they really tried to make us feel special. Oh, but yes. you're God's chosen. You're the special elite. Not, There's yeah. only this yeah. many people that are going to get
0: to be in this part of the heaven. There was definitely some fear tactics. Ooh. I would say that Tended to outweigh the other part because they didn't do much build, building up. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sometimes it would, but as far as okay, you're chosen to be God's servant, a thing. Yes, um, yeah. But but the fear was a big thing. When we are in Thailand, there was a brother, a, an uncle, we, an uncle there that I was missing an arm and and he had a mangled hand. Mm. And every every time we got like a big influx of new mm. teens and they were starting some new program, they would pull him up in front of us. And he'd tell the story of how he had two arms and he left the cult Mm. and had a logging accident that he was working in with a lot. Yeah. So Mm. it it took his arm and he instantly reached into grab like just, uh, the natural reaction to grab his arm and that mangled his hands and he would sit there and tell and with his hands and lack of hands and say this is what happened to me because i backslid because i turned my back on god you're sitting there like 16 years old i like going not pee your pants like that's yeah <laughs> like,
1: that's right like yeah. That's yeah. such a big, yes yeah like we would say god is love but Also, we had this very strong Old Testament concept of God judging fire and brimstone, damnation, punishment, (laughs) retribution, like harsh. He was a scary, dangerous God and you could not step out of line. Do not stray, I will smite you. David Berg really was very tormented. He was a very tormented man and he passed that on to us. And, and he tormented us with all these horror stories about God's judgment and the end of the world and crisis and turmoil. And yeah, we were traumatized. For me, living in the cult, I experienced a great deal of trauma because I didn't want to be there, but I didn't feel safe enough to leave. You know, it it's was like that for a long time. There were times when I... Did have an opportunity to spend time away from the cult and but I felt so apathetic so lifeless so disconnected I felt like I couldn't um, communicate with people I just didn't belong I felt there was no place for me in society hmm. even though being in the cult could be energizing at times like with all the singing and the gypsy dancing and that was just a very small part that sort of happy feeling, but a lot of it was just hard work, constantly being criticised, constantly afraid you're doing something wrong, and, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of pressure. And I think we had personalities. We adopted these personalities. We we were just different people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, like, dissociative personality disorder I would Mm -hmm. say living the life of a cult member, it's quite fracturing for your personality. And that's very disempowering because you can't call on your strengths when, you know, you're living a life as a very fearful, very scared, very cautious little mouse. You can't call on that intensity in that part of your nature of, hang on a minute, I'm not taking this. You can't treat me like this. Mm-hmm. And the flirty fishing had a lot to do with that and the family sharing. All this sex stuff in this cult really undermined people's power to stand up for themselves. Mm. Yeah, super yeah. true.
0: Yeah, we were talking earlier about it and we start out talking about like that there's battered women's syndrome. And I think that there yes. was a lot of that in the cult in the first generation but on an institutional level. Yes. And and Ooh. I did bring up that like in generalizations <laughs> things went better for men in the cults than for the women.
1: Yes, yeah. And That's you know exactly a, right.
0: a lot of the abuse that was rained down on us children came from male from male presence but we
1: also experienced some pretty harsh and scary women too i was very harsh on my children very harsh my children suffered a lot of physical abuse, and that's a huge thing in their lives and that's a really big topic because from my experience i was so overwhelmed with pregnancy after pregnancy breastfeeding, having little children, always feeling like I'm being watched and evaluated and judged and I'm going to be in trouble. I was always trying to fly under the radar, but I was a nervous wreck and I couldn't take the noise of a lot of children. and i felt very overwhelmed i had depression most of the time and yeah my children were terrified of me we've had conversations about this in recent years and my kids are like mom you were so scary if we just looked at you we'd scream at us and i'm like i oh, know i was trapped i was like a wild animal trapped in a cage with children yeah, yeah, I couldn't cope. I couldn't yeah. cope. And, yeah. and and there was also this thing about the discipline, better for me to beat my children than somebody else beat them within an inch of their lives. If, if there were families, and this happened a lot, if there were families who the mother wasn't disciplining, and that's a harsh, horrible mm-hmm. word, the children, that child was really at the mercy of the biggest thug in the household. And that did happen to my children at times as well.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The beatings will continue until morale (laughs) improves. Right. In the conversation, I brought up the Stanford prison experiment that was done back in the 70s. There's a controversy around it because... The studies were not done in the scientific expected way, and it was very unethical what they did. But essentially, they took these college kids and they were like, you're going to be the prisoners and you're going to be the guards. And they basically told them how they wanted them to behave. And Mm -hmm. they all behaved like that. Yes. And, you know. Yeah. Then you've got the guards and you've got the prisoners and the guards are mistreating the prisoners. And so I said to Jemima, I said, those are the two choices you had. You were going to either mm. be the guard or you were going to be the prisoner. And those were the two choices. And that's yes. Yeah. And but, every, I think people fell on either
1: side of that. That's right. And that went down the line where a leader, they're under pressure from their superior. Mm-hmm. And because they have no voice in relation to their superior, they have to just do as they're told and just take direction mm. or all this cult language, take direction, <laughs> get the victory, submit as on to the Lord and that. And then they would then either direct it at their partner or lower down the line. And then that goes down the line again to the children. So it was this very tight hierarchical s- structure where a person is both a, a bully an, an abuser and a victim from mm-hmm. those above and then a, an abuser to those below. Very fierce and dangerous. Yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely was full of that. Yes. yes. I almost think I remember being really young when I read that literature that the the earthers Beware, it's called IRRS, where the mother was home with their children and she was raped and murdered in front of the children yes. and berg went off about it happened because she turned her back on the lord and it was just the most
1: terrifying thing exactly i recall i recall that it makes you yeah. very insecure and very oh, it hit me really straight. hard as a child yeah, yeah. hit me yeah. really hard yeah i'm sure yeah mm.
0: we were all brainwashed all of us yeah, yeah. You mentioned your you, your children that you've had conversations with them. how many mm. kids do you, do you have, actually? I have eight. Wow. Yes. I mean, Why is that many? Wow. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm the yeah. oldest of eleven. Are so you? I mm. yeah. So I know the image of family reunions when you've got that number of yes <laughs> of siblings. So. Where is your relationship with them now? If you don't mind me asking, what's, you know, what I happened had, there?
1: Yeah, we left. I had to fight to get out of the cult. I had just mm-hmm. had a, a set of twins and it gave me a, like a hyper episode and they gave me morphine in the hospital. That's what it was. And just after the delivery of these babies and it made me manic. But it was undiagnosed. I didn't, no one knew what was wrong with me. I would just never slept and, you know, became very angry and aggressive and just uncooperative, basically. But that was in May 1990. That was when I had to fight my way out of the cult and fight to get all of my kids out. And then I had another baby after we left. Because I was trying to convince my husband not to leave us. He wanted to go back to the cult with half of the children. That was what the cult directed him to do. And so it was World War II between us, me trying to keep him with us and and not have all these fights about dividing the children so he could go off and serve the Lord as the leaders were instructing him. But And then I had an, an eighth baby. And that I had three babies under two. And, And my eldest was only 13. Yeah. So when we first left, once we settled down, once my husband stopped trying to leave, lives were quite good. I put the children in school. He had the job selling insurance, but that all changed. So had that situation not changed, the trajectory that we were on was a really good one. My children were still quite young. And we were like this, you know, bonded little family, but it didn't stay that way because someone else leaving the cult came to my house asking for help because he couldn't find his wife and and children. The leaders had moved them. And that set us on a completely different Trajectory where I was helping him, and I ended up blowing the whistle on the cult here in Australia because I spoke to police about what I knew about the cult, etc. And that really affected my mental health. It meant my children were then—I was an absent mother all those years in the cult. That was so hard for my children. It looked like we were going to be quite a, a, a tight little family, and then it all went pear shaped because. In a lot of ways, I sacrificed my own children to help the children in the cult, and that affected my mental health. It affected my family or my children, and my kids had very tumultuous teenage years and, yeah, a lot of inability to connect. It took me a long time to realise how very at fault I was I had the feeling that my children just didn't see what a hard life I'd had. I was very unaware of the suffering of my children. And that amazes me now. Like we have this little Facebook group for ex-members. Being in that group gave me insight because there were a lot of second generation and things they would say. I'm like, My kids say that too, and it just gave me an insight into my own children, and I realised, oh, my God, it's not them. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's me. And, yeah, it took me a long time to really understand the trauma I had inflicted on my children, not just in the cult, but afterwards. I was very emotionally dysregulated, and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I actually, my eldest, has been my the best mother to all of my children. Mm-hmm. She has been their most kind, loving, compassionate, mm-hmm. caring mother to them I was their I was a crazy mother and my other children too especially the older ones really parented the younger ones really looked after them and in their teenage years I knew very little about what was going on in the lives of my children but my eldest daughter and my third my, my third daughter they were the ones who really raised the others and help the others adjust in society. A lot like Hope in the the docu-series played a really huge role in the lives of her siblings. That's Mm. what my daughters did. Wow. Yeah. So I'm forever indebted to my eldest daughter especially. Mm. All of my kids have really worked hard to help each other That's good. It's good to hear you
2: acknowledge (laughs) Mm because a lot of the first generation aren't very willing to acknowledge the mistakes that they made and they just rather sweep it under the carpet, whatever, just, oh, let's all just carry on, put it in the past. Yes. Yeah. But I think a lot Mm -hmm. of us want our parents to realize that they
1: weren't that great. No. They weren't that great a parents to us. No. And denial is, it's, the reason it's so appealing and so rampant in the first generation is it's the most comfortable and easy route to follow. Yep. And society, especially if first generation don't let it be known that they were in a cult if they say they've been in missionary work, society can go pretty easy on them. Oh, it must have been so hard for you with all those children. No wonder your life is hard. All those kids, how did you manage? What a wonderful person you are. How great you are. But it's all denial. It's all because they're not telling the truth. I was in a cult. I was in a really serious, badass cult and my kids suffered. My, do you know this cult, I would say, In terms of its size and the 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 intensity of the damage done, it is the most serious child abuse scandal of the 20th century. Yeah. It, it, It really is. And that's something I had conversations with about with the director of the docu-series. His name is Hugh Ballantyne, and he's from Liverpool. I'm also from Liverpool, and there's a certain camaraderie with Liverpool people. They're quite tribal. But he said when he first started hearing about the cult, he was like, what is this? Like, he said it was the worst child abuse scandal he'd never heard of. And all that he learned about it, he's like, how could this be such a big secret? Yeah. Could-
0: yeah. yeah. They, they, yeah, they, 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 they did, they did really good with it. that. Yeah. Yeah. I have this thought about some of the other cults that have been considered the worst cults. Mm. David Koresh and mm. the Go situation, Jim Jones and then Heaven's Gate, because yes. those people all died. For, yes. For their, you know, for their cult, their belief system. And so they're seen as that's so much worse. But sometimes living. Yes. Is worse. They never took us to a place of, you know, okay, now we're all going to die and go to be with the Lord. Like they never brought us to that place, but they left
1: oh. us it, completely it, damaged. They did. They sacrificed every single child born into that cult, it was a living sacrifice every single day. You were neglected, you were abused, you were violated, you were exploited, you were enslaved, every single one of you. And there are thousands upon thousands of you. And it's the most hideous fucking secret. And the most unacknowledged thing, particularly by uh, my generation, your parents, us, and I tell you what, David Berg, what he managed to do, he groomed every single adult and they all in turn groomed all of you children to be exploited and abused and sacrificed. I wrote a manuscript called Children of Moloch, and I don't know if you remember, but David there used to talk about the god Moloch in the Old Testament. And there was some time a number of years ago, I was actually writing my first manuscript. I've written two manuscripts, one called Saving Me, Saving You, That was about my time in the cult. But as I was writing it, I would remember things and I'd be stomping up and down in the house. I'm like, oh, my God, this is a sacrifice cult. This is a child sacrifice cult. And I just remembered that's what Moloch was all about. It's what it was all about, the sacrifice of children. David Burke and Mo. Lock, we called him Mo. <laughs> oh, my, oh my god, it's all right there. Wow. And you know, I'm sorry to you, Whisper, and to you, Jemima, to all my children, all your siblings, and every single one of you born into the cult. I am sorry. For what I allowed to be done to you, and what I inflicted on the children in the cult that I knew—my own children included—and the world, the world needs to know what happened, and that Karen Zerbe is still alive and well and free. And even in this country, Australia, the leaders in this country who fought in the courts. To have the kids who were taken into protective custody they fought and they lied they lied to their solicitor they lied in court they lied to the media they lied to the children they lied to each other they lied to themselves and yeah. they yeah. still walking and walking around calling themselves missionaries and fabulous people and there's an Obscenity about this. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. If there's something that you would say or you would advise, maybe other first generations or second generations of how to heal that gap, because that's mm. one of the biggest problems right now that we have in the in the X yes. community. We've been through so much, and we could be such a strength together. But. Yes. Everyone has such a different opinion about how to go about the truth and how to go about. And so you have parents that are in denial and you have siblings that are in denial and you have, I want to accuse that uncle, but you can't accuse my dad. The way that I feel about it, the way that I feel about it is that no matter what someone says happened to them, Mm -hmm. a thousand percent, I believe them. Yes, exactly. that's, that's, That's just a starting point. Like Jemima always says, we don't have to exaggerate what happened to us. What happened to us was bad enough. I 100% believe anyone who comes up and says, abuse me, hurt me. And I believe them because that's the nightmare they lived in. Yes, You can pick off these little details and say that didn't happen or or, or, we weren't there at that time. But it was a child and that's the nightmare they remember. Yes. 1,000%, one thousand percent I will always believe them
1: exactly yeah
0: but I, you know how I think they're just we get lost sometimes and and how to fix it because I mm. there's some of us second generation kids that believe that there should be no reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like ch- chuck them all into the bin and, and toss the key but you are sitting here um taking responsibility for the things that you've done, for apologizing and being honest, super honest about what happened. You're still a mother. So when you came to realize just what your kids had gone through, like that had to be completely devastating. And that's, I think, what a lot of moms are afraid to look at. Yes. They don't want to admit what happened because yeah. it would devastate them as a, yes. as a, as a parent. And, and it's hard for them to believe that they were ever that manipulated, and that they were ever that 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 brainwashed. Is there any advice that you would maybe give to either the first generation or the second generation yeah. to to say, is there... Because I 100% want justice i want to see that too i believe it even if it's just the acknowledgement of the truth of just how horrid everything was (laughs) yes
1: yes, yeah
0: but there's also like you can't we can't go the rest of our lives without finding some sort of healing without finding some
1: sort of yes do you know whisper i would say just from my own experience the most important thing to do fundamental thing to do as a first generation is to listen to whatever your child wants to tell you whatever it is they want to say if they want to swear at you if they want to shout if they want to cry if they want to give you details if they want to blame you just take it just sit there and take it and let them speak because that is the gift that's your responsibility, to just listen and let them express it. And my experience is, once I started doing that, my children would fall all over themselves in their love for me, their affection for me, their kindness towards me, and their they're just forgiveness. And it doesn't all happen at once, but, yeah, <laughs> you know, like... I am very happy that my children care about me and I value their love as the most precious thing in my life. The love of my children, the forgiveness of my children, the kindness of my children towards each other. The second generation, be authentic with them. And they are, they show this incredibly strong, resilient, very just like it's a, it's a beauty. And all the first generation, it's like in not being real with their kids and not asking for forgiveness and not facing the truth they are missing out on being the lives of some of the most beautiful people on this planet yeah
0: i think there's another thing too that parents might not even realize by not talking about it by not bringing out the truth a lot of times that's not just hurting their relationship with their children. It's hurting the, 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 the kids relationships with each other. Families yes. get broken up because yes. one parent won't tell the truth uh, yes. of what the other parent did. And I just, I think if, if they just saw it on that level as well, of, yeah, it needs to come out for, not just for the parent child, but for the brother to sister,
1: yes. you know? Yeah yes
0: and even friend to friend we have these deep friendships with with each other the second generation and yet what some of the, the most heated online group conversations that have happened is when one of us is trying to talk about what another second generation's parent did to them so That right there, you're leaving your children in turmoil by not telling the truth because they're in turmoil with themselves. They're in in turmoil with each other and with their friends. And they say the truth shall set you free. It's not just you that you're setting free. There's so much else that
1: needs to be set free when the truth comes out. Yes, yeah. (sighs) And this all speaks to the nature of trauma because see... The second generation has experienced enormous trauma and continue to. And the first generation have also experienced trauma and continue to, but they hide. That's why denial is so appealing. That's why it's so hard to get people to really face the reality of what happened because it's so painful, but it depends on what people value. If they value Mm -hmm. the love and the connection with Mm -hmm. their children, then you have to let go of your denial. You have to listen to your children. Yeah, Mm -hmm. But I I would say that compassion, self-compassion, is the most healing balm in relation to trauma. Like one of the big problems with a, a cult, the children of God, the family, is that we have these very strong inner critics, because you know, there was always mm-hmm. so much talk about judgment and criticism and being bad and being wrong and being rebellious, being stubborn. And so we have these really strong inner critics. And I think that's got a lot to do with addiction. And the suicides, I think it's all to do with this massive inner critic that, that we've all formed in our minds, in our psyches. Mm-hmm. But the key to to removing that, dismantling that is self-compassion. and And that's something that's really helped me a lot because how can you have compassion for others until you practice, compassion for yourself because you have no idea what it is and yeah there is a woman her name's kristen neff any double f and she has devoted her career to the study of self-compassion and she has written books and she speaks on youtube and that is really the starting place for real healing from trauma and from disconnection even if The people around you don't come to see things the way you do. Like self-compassion is what will save the lives of all second generation. Everyone with trauma, the the healing thing is self-compassion. For a number of years, I've been a student of Tibetan Buddhism and yeah, so meditation and mindfulness, yep. been a big part <laughs> of my journey from In Denial cult member, <laughs> transitioning through and letting go of all, all of my superstitions, my irrational beliefs, my religious bigotry, my confusion about everything. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, yeah, so as a student of Tibetan Buddhism in particular, it's all about understanding that we, we're mistaken if we think that we're a very solid, concrete me. a a very strong having a very strong self sense of me and mine makes it very hard for us to receive someone saying you did this wrong or you did that wrong you harmed me because then we get our defenses up but coming (laughs) to this understanding that the me that we cling to and we feel like we've got to protect is actually just an idea It's not a real thing. We're a combination of our body and our mind, but we haven't got to protect our sense of me and my pride and my status. Mm -hmm. We haven't got to protect all that. They say when you do mindfulness meditation, you put your attention on the breath, your breathing. And then when your thoughts become Really loud, and you get caught up in all your thoughts and your emotional reactions. You can remind yourself, "Oh, I'm not my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I'm not my feelings. They're just like clouds in the sky. They come and they go." And it gives you a way of disidentifying with all your negative thoughts about yourself and even your thoughts about your experiences. It frees Mm -hmm. you up. That has helped me with my trauma, Mm -hmm. and. I still experience periodic depressions and I'm actually mm-hmm. writing a book about my depression. So that gives me a lot of motivation to really focus on what is going on when it occurs to me, oh, I know what's wrong, I'm in a depression again. Mm-hmm. You don't know when you're in a depression until you realize you're in a depression. And mm-hmm. yeah. but in writing this book, it's just really teased everything out for me. And I can see so much of my trauma and my depression. And I've done a lot of reading about how the brain works and how the mind works, and how to free your oneself from a depressive mood by just reminding yourself to lovingly care for that part of you that is in real pain and turmoil. Mm-hmm. You know, say, "Oh my God, I, I can't think of that. That's too upsetting." but let yourself, it's almost invite them in, bring them in, bring your trauma, your crying self, your wounded child, bring them in. Say, would you like a cup of tea? Let's have some biscuits. Let's sit. I'm here for you. Like holding space for ourselves is, yeah, and not being afraid of our trauma, not being afraid of our depression, not being afraid of our tears and our pain holding yeah. space for ourselves. It is a very good book. It's called The Mindful Way Through Depression, and it has four authors. And reading that book and you know, listening to the CD marked a real turnaround for me in being able to be with myself during a depression rather than be Resisting it and hating it and and oh my god, here we go again. This is going to be my whole life. I've been like this. I might as well just quit. That's really interesting. That's
2: what I tend to do when I get depressed. Oh god, I can't wait till this is over. <laughs>
1: yes, yeah, and and, and that aggravates. You. That's like this resistance that aggravates it and mm-hmm. makes us really scared. Oh my god, we're scared of the depression boogeyman. Oh my god, oh my god, I hate being depressed, yeah. but we can sit with ourselves in our, in in our whatever mood we're experiencing we can be with ourselves with a very open attitude and a very kind attitude and an open heart and just say yes i'm experiencing Sadness, but I'm not sadness. I'm experiencing sadness. Or when we we have emotional pain, we can find it in the body. Like the body is experiencing there is emotional pain in my chest. There's this pain and anxiety in my stomach. There's tiredness in my limbs. But 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 I'm not that tiredness. I'm not that distress. I'm not that pain. Mm-hmm. but. Yeah, mindfulness and meditation. And like I said, my studies with Tibetan Buddhism. But I've gone very slowly with that because I'm like, oh my God, but what if this is a cult? You know, what (laughs) if, you know, this is the whole thing just continuing. So I've really taken my time with it. But every psychologist I talk to and I tell them about my interest in Tibetan Buddhism, and they're like, that's great. That's Mm -hmm. really good. That will really help you. Because it's all about working with the mind and not being afraid of what pops into the mind. Hmm. But that, that's what trauma is, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the things that come up. You're still sitting on the chair or you're still lying on the bed and before you get that flashback or before you get that traumatic memory. And nothing has changed. It's just you're having a reaction to a thought or a memory or a a feeling, but Mm -hmm. you're safe. It's just your nervous system is experiencing some upheaval.
0: Yeah.
1: That's
0: correct. Did you say while you are in college or
1: you are currently in college? No. So after I left the cult and – I think I'd been out about two years then I went back to finish my high school certificate that took me two years (laughs) all my children were still young and they were all in school themselves and my little ones were in daycare and then I went to university and I did uh, a bachelor of arts and I was wanting to do a bachelor of education but I'd done two years part-time study, then three years full-time. By this time, my older children were in their older teens and there was a lot going on in my family and my mental health. I had a big collapse in my mental health. I had a a manic episode and I was hospitalised. I was in a psych unit for six weeks. Mm. So it was just as I finished my degree. And, And then 12 months later, I had a prolonged depression for a year, Mm. just when I turned 40. And then I had another psychotic episode and was hospitalised. And But I I finished my studies, but I've never really been able to do anything professionally because my mental health was a disaster Mm. for 10 long years from when I was 40 to 50. And I had addictions I couldn't cope with. But when I turned 50, I had a mini-stroke from smoking. What happened was my daughter called the ambulance. And they came to take me to a hospital, but there was no hospital available. They were all full and I couldn't be taken to a hospital. And then finally they took me to the local hospital and I was put in a wheelchair and left in a hallway on my own Whoa. for hours. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh my God, I have got to, I've got to get a grip of myself. I have to get a grip of my addictions. Mm-hmm. I've got to get a grip of my mental health. And that was, yeah. So I call that my stroke of luck. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's
0: and our last podcast, we started our conversation and, and it ended up being around mental health as well. We talked about, the point where we both realized okay this is a mental health issue and this needs to get fixed so many of us are either dealing with our mental health now or taking our lives one way or another through addictions or through actual suicide but the cults did not believe in doctors yes (laughs) and mental health issues were demons it was not real so you're Coming from that perspective, do you look back in your own life and wonder if, you know, that you were having mental health issues that were just not being attended to, essentially not being cared for? So it, it was that, you know, trying to like just bury what was going on with us.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. See, even society in general, back in the 70s, that mm-hmm. was when I joined the cult, there was no real discussion about mental health. I'd never heard that phrase, mental health. I didn't hear that phrase until, that's recent. We all <laughs> say it almost every day we use those words, but there was a time I never even heard those words, mental and health together. And depression, It's nothing was known about depression. I actually had depression when I was seven when we first came to australia my mother was depressed and well, mm-hmm. we was depression she just couldn't get off the bed she just lay there on the bed and i experienced depression and i know it was depression because i stopped talking and i stopped eating and i developed malnutrition but it was never like oh my god what's wrong with this child why won't she eat i just couldn't eat i couldn't Digest food. I had no interest. That's Mm -hmm. depression. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I had malnutrition and dysentery. We lived in a migrant hostel. My father was away working in the mines. And my mother was very depressed. And I was seven. No one knew. No one said that child's depressed. So it went undiagnosed. So all through my teenage years, there were times I would have episodic depressions, but it was never acknowledged. And I joined the cult. I was in a depression when I met the cult for the first time. So that was a big dopamine release for me, Mm -hmm. meeting these amazing people. They came to the school, they revolution for Jesus, all (laughs) the rest of it. That was a big dopamine buzz for me. So, of course, I had very positive memories of that very short encounter and it snapped me out of my depression. It energised me. Mm -hmm. And then I met them again when I was 17. Again, I was in a depression. And meeting them again, that was so – I would be surprised if that was not the case – for quite a few other people who met the cult when they did. Mm. We used to sing this song, I Once Was a Lonely Hippie, I Had No Place to Go, but you just right. didn't yeah. not that one. I'm like, I'm <laughs> not with such a ghost <laughs> Once was long, a hippie. hippie. They could relate to that. And, yeah, mm. I was a lonely student. So I would say depression and mm. my mental health got worse and worse in the cult. Mm. yeah yeah Yeah. and I yeah I I always expected that when we left life would get so much better and would improve and it did until I got involved in blowing the whistle on the culture in Australia (coughs) I was under a lot of stress with that yeah and that just set me on this nosedive in my mental health Mm. yeah
0: And like you said, it's true. Society does not like to talk about mental health. There's been this shame associated with it. And so more and more, uh, we're realizing how important it is just for everything. And it's being talked about now. But sometimes I do wonder if a lot of us are still afraid to talk about mental health because of the way that it was looked at. Yes. And, you know, a a second generation or is that we should be all in therapy. <laughs> we should be happy. We should be looking at us, like looking to heal, whatever. Yes. The wounds might be there, but I think there's many of us who are still afraid of it or see it as a weakness instead of, no, this is our strength actually. Yes. So yes. I hope that in the conversations that we have on this podcast, <laughs> where we mm-hmm. do talk about it in in a not unshameful way, it's nothing that people would feel more encouraged to follow that, that not to poo-poo, not to, oh yeah, self-help, blah, blah, blah. It's it's self-development and it's so important. And it reaches into many corners of our lives that we don't realize. And it's not just, oh, I'm going to lay here on the couch and tell my, and my psychiatrist is going to tell me that that's because I wanted to with my mother or whatever, but that's not what it is about. It's about connecting to the needs you have, your own yes. mental needs, and by looking at your mental health, you're connecting to those pieces. We feed yes. ourselves. We need to also take care of our brains
1: and our mental place. That's we need exactly, to them, yes. so. That's exactly right. Whisper yeah, mental health, you know, is actually very physiological. Because we exist in human bodies. We have bodies of flesh and bone and enzymes and hormones and chemicals. And we experience our thoughts in our bodies. Our bodies experience our thoughts. Our bodies experience our emotions. So mental health, the word mental can be a little bit of a misnomer, And it has connotations of crazy, you're crazy, there's something bad, wrong about you, but it's very physiological. And that's one of the really good things about mindfulness because it brings your attention to your body. Because we have within us all the resources we need to be whole and happy and healthy in an emotional way, in a you know, mental health way. We can anchor our ourselves, we can stabilize ourselves with our breathing, we can breathe out. There's a very good book called The Relaxation Response, and it's by a doctor. It's about yeah, the, the, the significance of the body and, and going from fight, flight, freeze, fawn to relax, digest, mm-hmm. and rest. And we can use our minds to bring our attention back into our bodies. And, you know, that's where our healing takes place.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, that's a
0: fantastic conversation around that.
1: Mm. But self-acceptance is that's self-compassion and self-acceptance. Here, here's a good one. and oh, know unconditional friendliness towards oneself. That's such a key. Having mm. an attitude of unconditional friendliness. Like you guys, how how much Whisper how much you love Jemima <laughs> and how much she loves you. That's yes. how that quality of love is what we need to give ourselves yeah Jemima gives it to you 100% unconditionally and you give it to her 100% unconditionally but we don't do that for ourselves because we have this fierce inner critic or this feeling I should be better I should do better I should look better I should act better I've got to suck it up I've got to toughen up but yeah unconditional friendliness towards oneself Mm-hmm.
2: It's true. That's a really good point. It's yeah. yeah. I remember that was another big breakthrough for me when my therapist was like, okay, so what's going on with you? Oh my God, all this stuff. Okay. So if your best friend called you up right now and told you that all this stuff was going on with her, what would you tell her to do? Oh, I would be like, why don't you do this and this and this? And she's, like, that's what you should do for yourself. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh wait, what? She's not like, yeah, treat yourself the way you would your best friend. And I'm just yes. like, oh my God, is that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's unconditional love and acceptance for yourself and every part of yourself too. Exactly. The past selves that we had to be to get to where we are. And there's always shame associated with survival and guilt and the things that, that we did to survive we're not proud of them. It's hard and stuff you don't even want to talk about or acknowledge that you had to be that person, but we have to love those parts of ourselves too, because
1: yeah, that was just us trying to walk our own selves home. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. And there's this thing about impermanence. We're not permanent beings. Like the person that you were a year ago, you are not that person now. And 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 this sort of speaks to, we were speaking earlier about how I can sit with my children and just hold space for them while they speak, while they, whatever it is they want to say, because I'm also holding space for that mother that they had back then. And I am this mother now and this mother can hold space for my child in this moment and as they tell their their grief and their hardship and talk to me like i no longer identify with the woman i was mm-hmm. i i have compassion it, it, but this is all to do with memory as well because the past does not exist it actually doesn't exist the only thing Moment by moment is the present, but even the present doesn't exist. The past is the construct in our mind, and every time we recall the past, we are rebuilding this construct. But the past seems very real to us. It's not that it's not real, but it's no longer existent. So having very harsh feelings towards oneself in the present for things that one did in the past, we haven't got to do that. Mm. That's know. really
0: good. Yeah. That's yeah. a really interesting, like a good way of looking at it.
1: Yeah. And, and that's how I've let go of a lot of my grief. I still have grief. Yeah. I still have attacks of grief for my children and things that happen. But then I'm like, oh, hang on a minute. I'm here in the present. Yes. Mm.
2: Yeah. It's like the Maya Angelou one. Do as good as you can. And when you know better, do better.
1: Yes. Yep.
2: And. Thank you so much, Sandy, for being so vulnerable and sharing
1: with us. And this has been really good. Absolutely. It's an utter joy to see both of you. At the same time. <laughs> it really is. It's just lovely to be with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's, I've been it listening is to you for so long now. <laughs> to be here so with you is
0: just... It's been wonderful having you. You shared a lot of things. We we talked about things that can be really difficult and really tough. And I think my only thought that I could close this podcast with is we all have our own healing journey. We all have our own trajectory and yes. we all can be okay <laughs> yes. with letting other people heal their way. If if your path to healing is to be angry at every single first generation adult there was, mm. go ahead. You know, like that, that, that that's your prerogative. That's your journey. And if you want to forgive them and open your arms to them and whatever direction that you know we try we take as we're putting out these little feelers of living in the real world and what our relationships look like now. There's not a black and white about any of this. It's, you know, one of those social constructs of like what we just all agree is the majority agrees on not taking on um, anything with expectations. I expect you to be doing this. I expect you to have the same opinion as me. I expect you to be on the same road as me. That's not going to happen. And so I think along with the compassion to ourselves and holding Mm. space for ourselves, like, Yeah, we are all in this together. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) ain't that? Because of the pandemic, but as ex-members trying to heal through what we went through, we're we are in it together, and so allowing each other to just be be where be where you are. I'm gonna be where I am. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's the thing that I think I I really do want to take away from this is that Mm. regardless of even if I had certain personal feelings. We've sat together. We've shared tears together here. We've laughed together. We have smiled with each other. And that's a connection that you can just allow to be. It doesn't have to mean anything necessarily to you, or it can mean something to you if you would like it to. And so I think that's a really important thing that I want to take away from this is, is just the acknowledgement of these open conversations that are so important. They're yes. so important and we're not going to have them unless we're willing to listen, yeah, <laughs> just shouting at everybody. is not going to, not going to generate any type of conversation. So I do appreciate you coming um, and speaking with us and, oh yes. And we re- referenced a little bit, the documentary that you were in because you were in a five part documentary series yes. or docu series is how you say it these days. And it was done by the disc- Discovery? Channel yeah. Yeah. So I know here in the States a lot of people will have it on their with their Amazon Prime and stuff, but that was a five-part docuseries that you helped, you were a part of and you interviewed for. And it's a really great series. It's called it, Children it of the is. Cult. Yeah. <laughs> Children of the Cult. It's not just our story. It's like you sit there and you watch these women and, and the way they grew. Yes. And, and there's all these pieces in there that I think we can all identify with, like yes. any of us can identify with it. So it's, yeah, if, if anyone listening wants to take a peek at that, it's a five-part series and it, it's pretty
1: incredible. It's it's pretty yeah, incredible. It is. It's it's really amazing. And, you know, uh, but When we first began speaking about it, I said about the women, they're really at the forefront of letting the world know what went on in the cult. But there's also some amazing men like Perry. He spoke, didn't he? And also Joshua. And I think it's hard for women to speak publicly about these things and it's also it's very hard for men. It, it's very courageous. And I was very touched by both of them, by Perry and also Mm -hmm. Joshua very appreciate like that was beautiful that they did that
0: yeah absolutely and Verity's brothers too that was oh yeah oh my gosh
1: and yes her other brother you know
0: that's a bit their open hearts they're to her and her her journey and standing by her like I was bawling like a baby (laughs) I was like look at these Uh, look at these guys like standing up for their sister and like holding mm. her and helping I was just like It was beautiful to see that. It was beautiful. It
1: was. And the policemen too, those two policemen, they were so invested in in hope and in Verity. So that was really very encouraging that there are people out there who are like, what happened? And they're just shocked.
0: Well, that was the start of my journey of realizing that I needed healing was just watching a TV show where I was like, wait, that's how people react to this kind of stuff. And I don't think we realize the extent of the importance of someone in a position of, you know, authority or a law enforcement person to sit there and say, wow, what happened? You guys was so fucked up. <laughs> like that that's a really powerful thing to, to to have that acknowledgement, that validation. I think sometimes we don't realize how much we need it. So that was another huge gift to watching that in the in the docuseries. And it wasn't like, oh, this is the salacious story
1: this I was no it this, was so beautifully yeah. put together yeah. yes so very beautifully put together yeah. yeah and that's the difference between journalism and filmmaking these people were <laughs> filmmakers. yeah,
2: yeah. Mm.
0: fabulous little wins celebrate the little wins right <laughs> oh yes yeah. that's, that's always I, I like to do that yeah that wraps us up for
1: (laughs) this episode wonderful Um, thank you for having me and I was
0: thrilled just
1: yeah thank you
0: really appreciate you being here as well thank you so much so (laughs) we like to say in closing stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar